I love the last phrase of that uh, text, that, uh, that passage that uh, Dennis just read. The zeal of the Lord of the host will accomplish this. This hope that we're talking about this morning is not just wishful thinking. Uh, it, is, it is a reality, and uh, the Lord's uh, second coming is a reality. Yeah, he will accomplish this, and uh, make no mos- mistake about it. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Lord, now as we come to consider this passage and as we continue this, uh, this focus on this theme of hope this morning, I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be something in this passage of Scripture for each one of us here today, whether it's the first verse or the fourth verse or the, the last verse of, of this passage of Scripture, Lord, this is your word. This is your word, Lord. This is the word of God to us and for us. And so now, Lord, I ask that you, by the power of your spirit, that you will bring your word alive and you'll apply it to our hearts and lives and give us whatever we need this morning, Lord. You know where we are and you know what we need. In your name I pray. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Several years ago, I read this story from a book. The year was 1772. An impenetrable fog had settled over London, England. In a dismal apartment, a man gazed despondently into the fireplace. He was gripped by anxiety, he was overcome by fear and depression, and he felt like his only option was suicide. And so he made his way from his chair to the front porch out into this fog, and he groped with his hand, and he felt this peace there on his front porch. He knew it would be there the head of this iron horse, and the ring of a hitching post. And then he followed the sidewalk down to where the carriage would be, and he knew that it would be there. And he got into the carriage, and he said to the carriage driver, to the Thames, because he planned to throw himself into the Thames River. His only option he felt in life was to end his life. Well, the driver took off. It was only about a 15-minute drive from his home to the river. But after an hour and a half of going in this carriage and wandering around in the fog, the carriage driver knew that he was lost. And so this man asked him to stop the carriage. He stepped out, and he decided that he'd walk to the river himself. And as he stepped out of the carriage and reached out his hand, it touched the top of this iron post. And it was the same hitching post, the very same post in the front of his house. After an hour and a half, he ended up back home. And he was so overcome by this event that he went into his house and he knelt down and he began to pray and he asked God's forgiveness And as he asked God's forgiveness, he began to write a poem. 
and he wrote these words, deep, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his brightest designs and works his sovereign will. Ye saints of God, fresh hope, fresh courage, take. They will break in blessing on your head. And so these words were written by William Cowper, that famous poet and hymn writer. In fact, he became a very good friend of John Newton's. And together they published the Alney Hymns, in which you find that great hymn, Amazing Grace, and this hymn that he wrote on that occasion. Well, the story of Cowper's life, although he struggled with depression and with anxiety and fear, was that he reconnected with God and he rediscovered hope in his life. And what I want you to see this morning is that Cowper is really no different than you and me. In fact, he's no different than the children of Israel or the nation of Judah in the Old Testament in this passage of Scripture. Look at verses 1 and 2 in this passage again. And notice that as the prophet Isaiah is penning these words, the nation has been overcome with this this spiritual darkness. It's like they're groping blindly in a spiritual fog. And so we have Judah's predicament, this darkness. And that's the first point in your outline, your insert this morning, is described for us here in this passage of Scripture. Look back up the page at verses 21 and 22 in Isaiah chapter 8. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And notice how they are described. They will pass through the land greatly distressed. You have any distress in your life? Or is your life always just smooth sailing? They were distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, God says, they will be enraged and they will speak contentiously against the king of their, and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, will be th- and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This was their experience as Isaiah was writing these words. This was their predicament or their problem. And he wrote these words in probably around 730 B.C. And just so you know, Judah's life was not always a life of darkness. They lived a good life for a long time because they had this king by the name of Uzziah who was on the throne for 52 years. And he left the throne in 740 B.C., and when he left the throne, this age, the golden age of prosperity and all of the abundance that Israel had been experiencing at that point went with him. And an alliance was made between the northern kingdom and Syria in 735 B.C. in order to resist the reigning power in the world at that time, Assyria. They formed this alliance, and they wanted Judah to become a part of the alliance because if they didn't stand together, they were going to fall apart. And yet this young king Ahab would have nothing to do with the alliance, and he wouldn't have anything to do with God either. Instead, he was going to go his own way. And he 
He actually formed an alliance with Syria, or pardon me, with Assyria so that he wouldn't be trampled on. He ran for the help of people instead of running to God, and darkness enveloped the land. Now, when I read this passage of Scripture, I think about our present-day world, and it was interesting, Dan, you were talking about how you struggle to hold on to hope when you read the newspaper or when you, you get on the Internet today. And if you're following what's going on in our world, we've got this, what we call this ISIS crisis. And we had this situation in France a few weeks ago. And we've got all this stuff going on, and we're reading about it every day, and it's, it's just easy to become, over, it's easy to become over, overcome with fear. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 7 for a minute. Just turn back a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4. Pardon me, actually, verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 7. And notice how the Bible describes the heart of Ahaz in this situation, this young boy king who followed Uzziah and who didn't become a part of this alliance, and, and he's, he's, he's trying to reach out to help to Assyria instead. And the Bible says here that when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I love the Bible because it's, it's, it's just so true of life. It's just so realistic. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you were so afraid of whatever was coming into your life that you, somebody could have described you in this way that your heart was shaking like the trees of the forest shake before the wind? That was their situation. They were overcome with anxiety and fear. They were in darkness. And so Isaiah gives them this prophecy. And how many times, incidentally, do we run to someone else or something else rather than the Lord in our lives to solve our problems? Whether it's the ISIS crisis or it's some personal problem that's invaded our life. Well, Isaiah delivers this prophecy that we're going to look at now this morning. But before we do, notice why Judah had this problem, why they were in this predicament. Turn back to chapter 1 in the book of Isaiah and look at verses 1 through 4. Ahaz was overcome with fear. And Judah was groping around in darkness, and they were going to be trampled on by the Assyrian army. And incidentally, all of these prophecies come true. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. And in 701 B.C., just as Isaiah prophesies here in these passages, Judah falls to Assyria, everything but the capital city of Jerusalem. But why were they in this predicament? Well, look at verses 1 through 4. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly separated from me, he says. Israel was in this predicament. Judah had this problem because of their disobedience. They were in darkness because of disobedience, because of their sin. And that's described for us here in verses 1 through 4. That was why they were in the situation that they were in. I'm reminded of a humorous story that I heard many, many years ago about a deacon in a church that was struggling with sin. And so every night, pardon me, not every night, but every Wednesday night at prayer meeting, he would always have the same confession. And he would pray this prayer at prayer meeting. He would mutter, and Lord, clean out all the cobwebs in my life. And he would do this week after week. And so finally, after several months, this had gone on. There was another man in the prayer meeting who couldn't stand it any longer. And so when he got up on that particular night to say what he always said, this young man jumped to his feet and he shouted, Lord, he said, don't do it. Don't clean out the cobwebs. Speaking of all of that stuff that had accumulated in his life, he said, don't do it. He said, kill the spider. And I think of this story often because how many times in our own lives will we do anything and everything to get out of darkness or to to get the stuff out of our life that we're struggling with? We'll do anything and everything but kill the spider. The one thing we won't do is deal with the root problem, which is sin, That's why we're in darkness. And so Israel was willing to do anything and everything. They were even willing to run to Assyria. And the northern kingdom was willing to have an alliance. They were willing to do anything and everything to get out of this predicament or problem. But deal with the problem, which was their sin. You got to kill the spider. You got to deal with the root problem. And so they're in darkness, and there's a reason there's gloom and anguish. Now, I want you to notice God's response to our sin. How does God respond to our sin when we're wandering around in darkness, when we're in in the fog? And incidentally, I want to say this before we go any further. Sometimes you can be in darkness, And there may be a spiritual fog in your life, and it's not the direct result of sin, okay? Sometimes there may be something that you're struggling with, and it's not because you've gone out and you've been disobedient to God. That was Israel's situation. That was Judah's situation. But that's not always the case. And I think it's important to offer that disclaimer this morning. But that was their situation. And I want you to notice God's response to their disobedience. First of all, God is very patient with us. God is patient with us when we blow it, 
when we go our way instead of his way. And incidentally, that's the essence of sin. The, 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 the heartbeat or the essence of sin is choosing to go my way and form an alliance with Assyria or get in bed with, with, with Syria or with the northern kingdom or whatever it's going to be for, to me in order to deliver me from my dilemma. The, the, the essence of sin is choosing to go my way and follow my plan instead of following God's plan. And when we do that, as much as God hates it, God is very patient with us. And I thank God that he's patient with me because there are times when I've chosen to go my way instead of going God's way in my life. And we've all been there and done that. And if you study the book of Judges and the study of the history of Israel, and if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, or you look at Peter in John chapter 21, God responds very patiently with us. But then the second thing he does many times is he'll bring pressure into our lives in order to reel us back in, in order to get us to come back to himself. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, when we were in the book of Second Chronicles, and we see it here again this morning. That's what Assyria is all about. That's what this situation is. Many times God will allow things like the ISIS crisis or things like the nation of Assyria here for Judah in the Old Testament. He will allow some big problem, some big nation bully, something to come into your life, some pressure in order to reel you back in and bring you back to himself. So he responds patiently, but he allows pressure to come into our lives. I remember a a profound statement by C.H. Spurgeon. He said at one point in his life, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart on the black horse of affliction. And so sometimes God will even allow us to be afflicted by Assyria or whatever it is in our lives, in order to bring us back to himself, that pressure, that darkness, or whatever it is that we might be struggling with. God in his mercy, even though it doesn't feel like mercy, will allow it. And I remember another profound statement by the head of my doctor of ministry program at Denver Seminary when I was working so hard on on my, my doctor of ministry degree several years ago. Dr. Osborne made this statement. He said, too often, we try to use God. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people here in America today that, you know what God is? God is nothing more than a person to be used by them. And so he made this observation. He said, too often, we try to use God to change our circumstances while he is using our circumstances to change us. And that's what he's doing in the life of Judah here in the Old Testament. He's allowing these circumstances to change them, to bring them back to himself. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 very quickly, and notice the heart of God. He says to Israel in this situation, way back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, "'Come now, let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow.'" (coughs) Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, 
You'll eat the good of the land. That's the heart of God. He wants them to eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And so the third way God responds to our sin many times is he will not only allow pressure to come into our lives, but he will allow punishment to come our way. He'll provide a way to escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. But if we don't take that way of escape, then he will eventually have his way of judgment in our lives and that's what happened in the nation of Judah in this passage of scripture. Now moving on to the end of Isaiah 9. I want you to notice <clears throat> Isaiah's prediction. Look at verses 1 through 4. And here we have a picture of the heart of God again. God's heart, I don't believe, is to punish us. That's not where he wants us to end up. God's heart is to deliver us from the darkness or whatever it is in our life. And so we have this beautiful prophecy. And I'm not going to read it again, verses 1 through 4. You just heard Dennis read it a few moments ago. But notice this prophetic picture that Isaiah gives us, this description, this declaration. That's the third point in your outline. That's the D. Isaiah's declaration here, his prediction of of what God's going to do in the life of this nation. And notice he says, there will be no gloom. For her her who was in anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and then in the land of Naphtali. And he's talking now about the northern kingdom. That's what happened during this age, that time. But in the latter time, he says, he has made, the glory, made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of nations. And now he's talking about Jesus. This wonderful prophecy, what's going to take place 700 years later. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and Jesus Christ becomes our source of hope, and he's the source of hope uh, for Israel as well. And one thing that interested me a great deal about these verses, look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 of this prediction of Isaiah, and I want you to notice that that's in the past tense even though it's 700 years before Jesus is going to show up, 700 years before he's born, notice in verse 1 that this description is in the past tense. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. It's in the past tense. That's the prophetic past tense. Prophetic perfect, as I think it's called. In other words, it's so certain that this is going to happen that he can put it in the past tense, even though it's it's 700 years away. That's the word of God. That's the reality, the certainty of what we have in our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And it's fascinating to me that that Naphtali and Zebulun, these, these two tribes that are described here, they were the first ones to experience the darkness. Assyria overran them and took them captive first, and they will be the first ones 
to experience the light. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, and you'll read about Zebulun and Naphtali. This is the the area of Galilee where Jesus Christ began and and had most of his ministry. And so they're the the ones to to first experience the light, this this hope that that, uh, he's describing here. Now, let me ask you this morning, where are you this Christmas? Are you walking in darkness? Are you just struggling to hold on to hope? Are you wondering, where is all of this leading? You know, where is God taking me? Where, what's up in my life? Where are you today? Well, notice verses 6 and 7. Notice who you can hold on to in the midst of whatever it is in your life today Notice this beautiful promise that we have here in these last two verses. God's promise, his description of Jesus. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This phrase, wonderful counselor, was used in the Old Testament to describe wise counselors and advice givers. And this word... Wonderful is really the word miracle, and it's a word which was used many times to describe God and his word. God's word is miraculous. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is miraculous. He is the wonderful counselor, and many times God speaks to us through his wonderful word. And you can hear the voice of Jesus tapping you on the shoulder. In Psalm 119, the Bible says, Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. That's the same word, wonderful. Wonderful counsel, wonderful word. And we need God's word this morning if we're going to have hope. You know, we've got all kinds of counselors in our, our country today. Just walk down the the aisles of Barnes & Noble Bookstore in Albany. Go up there, and if you're shopping for books this Christmas, just walk down the aisles of Barnes & Noble and look at all the self-help books and all of the books that you can buy that supposedly will give you hope in your life. But you know what we really need? We need the counsel of this book. We need the wonderful counselor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons I love these new classes that we're starting today. And I would encourage you to step into the Bentley Sunday School class. The Word of God is filled with wise counsel. Our wonderful counselor speaks to us when we get into this book during this Christmas season. And then notice this second phrase. He's not only the wonderful counselor, but he's the mighty God. This is the same phrase that was used to describe David's mighty warriors. Well, Jesus is more than just a mighty warrior soldier. He's the mighty God. And this word God and and mighty together, you could almost describe him as the mighty almighty. You know, we live in a, a culture today infatuated with superheroes. A lot of you young people love to talk about the the Hulk. And we're all into Spider-Man, and we're into, we're into 
who was the guy that had the rocket, you know, the, the, the guy that went faster than the speed of light, all of these movies, all of these superheroes. And there's Thor, and you, you, you name your favorite. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is the mighty almighty. Jesus Christ is bigger and better and more reliable than any superhero that you could ever run to. He's more reliable than the nation of Syria that the nation of Judah tried to have an alliance with. He's the only one that you can run to in your life that you can really depend on, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the mighty God, and he's the everlasting Father, and he's the Prince of Peace. Take the notes. We're out of time. Do your own Bible study. We've given you a bunch of Hebrew words here this morning. And you can go home and you can, you can read more about the Lord Jesus Christ, your source of hope during this Christmas season. But I was very, very interested yesterday when I came over here to the office. Came to the office and also went to the post office box and I got two sets of Christmas cards, one here and one there. And one of the cards I got was from the president of the denomination that ordained me. And on the front of the card, it said, Peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. You know, there are a lot of people today that are looking for peace in all the wrong places. And there's lots of people, there's a lot of energy right now toward the the presidential debates. Because we're looking for what? We're looking for the perfect ruler, right? We're looking for somebody that's going to deliver us from all of this stuff, this dark path that we're, we're afraid we're going down. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not going to happen. There will be no perfect president, and there will be no perfect ruler until Jesus Christ comes again and sets his feet on this planet. This passage isn't ultimately going to be fulfilled until Jesus comes again and he reigns perfectly. That's the meaning of that word prince or the prince of peace, the governor, the ruler of peace. Take these notes home, study them this month or this afternoon. But the second piece of mail that I got yesterday was this piece of mail called My Hope, the Billy Graham Association. For the last three years, they've been having this campaign called My Hope. They had My Hope 2013, My Hope 2014, My Hope 2015, and now they're getting ready for My Hope 2016. And on the front of this brochure, it says, Our nation's in trouble. Jesus Christ is the only hope. And that's the end of the story, and that's the point of the message. The point of this passage this morning is, Don't run to all this other stuff. Run to him. He's our only hope. And what a wonderful opportunity we have this Christmas season as a church family to go tell it on the mountain, to proclaim this hope that Mike's going to come now and lead us in this hymn as we sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus, Jesus Christ. Let's stand number, I think it's number, is it 404, and sing it together.